1865, four years of war and attrition had taken their toll. A group of Chihenny Apache, one of the bands that constitute the Chiricahua group, decided they had had enough. Their lands had been invaded, their food taken, their guns and ammunition lost. A group of Chihenny leaders, including those who went by the names of Salvadora, Nana, and Victorio, sued for peace. While they had wished to treat with Michael Steck, the former Indian agent who had the distinction of being both honest and well-regarded, they instead were forced to deal with General James Henry Carleton. Carleton's solution was what we've come to expect. The Apache could have peace, but they would have to give up all their lands and be relocated to the reservation at Bosque Redondo on the Pecos River to prove that they really weren't hostile anymore. The Jehenis were understandably reluctant to take this deal, as no one besides Carlton seemed to think that the Bosque Redondo reservation was a good idea. Victorio, in particular, asked that his people be allowed to live alongside the Gila or Mimbris River. He even promised that his men would help fight against other Apaches still hostile to the U.S. Army, and would even help recover stolen livestock. The main narrative here is that Though he hated the idea of going to Bosque Redondo and steadfastly refused to take his people there, Victorio still wanted peace. He was done fighting. However, that was his personal conviction. He made sure to let the white eyes know that this did not apply at all to Cochise, the great leader who still held sway over the various bands of the Chiricahua Apache. Victorio told the army officers that he had tried talking Cochise into making peace with the White Eyes. However, somewhat ominously, he reported that Cochise had rejected the idea of coming to terms. Cochise, he said, quote, does not wish it and will never be friendly more, end quote. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ. The History of Arizona. Episode 46, Cochise Will Never Be Friendly. For the past three weeks, we've covered some momentous events in the history of Arizona, including its formation as a U.S. territory, the discovery of gold along the Colorado and Hasayampa rivers, and the long walk of the Navajos after being subdued by Kit Carson. That's all important stuff that we needed to cover, but it did swing our attention away from our favorite reoccurring, sometimes protagonist, sometimes antagonist, the Apache. If I sound like a broken record, it's because the Apache really defined this era of Arizona history, with everyone always on the defensive, and occasionally the offensive, to make sure that they didn't end up with an arrow in the back. Or, you know, tied upside down over a fire, which we have seen was something the Apache went in for a lot. Also, I wouldn't expect this to let up anytime soon, as we are only to 1863, and the Apache under Cochise and then later Geronimo will be active for another couple decades. Victorio was right. Cochise had no interest in being friendly. 
The last time we dealt primarily with the Apache was back in episode 41, when we covered the death of Mangus Coloradas, who was shot by the soldiers who had taken him captive. Oh, sorry, I meant shot while trying to escape. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. After the death of the Great Chief, it appears that the Bidankihi Band of the Chiricahua joined themselves with Cochise's Choconan Band, perhaps permanently. Part of this is coming from the recollections of Geronimo, though his recounting of events does tend to be a bit muddled. But with Mangus Colorado's dead, leadership over the greater swath of the Chiricahua Apache was naturally resting upon the shoulders of Cochise. We'll talk just a bit more about this in a second. Now, the last time we saw Cochise was at the Battle of Apache Pass in July 1862. After his defeat there, he and his men appear to have made something of a beeline for the safety of Mexico. However, Cochise actually does get really hard to track down throughout 1863 and 1864. He seems to have roamed around quite a bit between Arizona, Sonora, Chihuahua, and New Mexico, and we have very little direct evidence of his itinerary during this time. Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney pieces together some of the possible comings and goings from indirect evidence, things like the testimony of escaped captives and the movements of the Chiricahua Apache bands during these two years. But overall, what Cochise was exactly up to for this period of time is a hard thing to pin down. What we do know is that the Chiricahua showed up again in the area of Fronteras in Mexico. Here they had more tense negotiations with Governor Pesquera, it's always nice to see a familiar face, who agreed in early 1863 to a truce and that he would provide some rations, providing that the Chiricahua turn over their arms and agree to be part of a roll call twice a week, just to make sure no one was sneaking out to raid and pillage. Now, Cochise was not a part of this treaty, which suggests that by the time of its signing, he had returned to Arizona. And that makes sense, because remember that on January 18, 1863, Mangus Colorados had been killed. Oops again. Shot while escaping. We still going with this story? Oh, okay, we are. Whatever you say, boss man. Shot while escaping. Literally the day after Colorados' death, another group of soldiers near Pinos Altos had a run-in with some Apaches from the Great Chief's band. In the ensuing skirmish, 11 Apache were killed and one wounded. And the one who was wounded turned out to be none other than Colorados' wife, Tuese. In other skirmishes in coming days, one of the chief's sons would be killed and another would be captured. As Sweeney points out, this means that in a matter of days, Cochise's wife, Dotese, lost her father and brother, while her mother was wounded and another brother was taken captive. You can say what you want about cultural differences, but I don't think there is a culture on earth where that wouldn't have affected someone pretty deeply. And with the Apache, tied as they were to their family units and local bands, this can only mean one thing. Revenge. And it's in this time period that we see the Bidonkihi band really join with Cochise, now that Mangus Colorados was gone. According to Geronimo's recollection, which is admittedly suspect, the group now retreated into the Chiricahua Mountains near Apache Pass. What we do know for certain is that on February 16th, 
1863, a group of six Apache women approached Fort Bowie under a flag of truce, with 20 more arriving the next day. At least 100 warriors were spied in the mountains around about. Unfortunately, we don't have a good report about what these Apache women may have been doing or what their motivations were. Sweeney theorizes that they may have been trying to spy a weakness at the fort. Which is not that crazy of a theory. Remember that Fort Bowie was something of a slap in the face, and had been built right on the doorstep of traditional Chiricahua territory to prevent things such as the Bascom Affair or the Battle of Apache Pass from the previous year. Just a few short months earlier, in October 1862, Apaches had attacked and driven off a herd of horses from the fort, probably to sell down in Mexico. We'll come back to Fort Bowie, because for now, the Apache appeared to have drifted eastward, where on March 22, 1863, they made a raid on Fort West, which sat just a little northwest of modern Silver City, New Mexico. This raiding party was able to make off with 60 horses, despite the fact that they were grazing less than a mile from the main army camp and were guarded by a sergeant and 12 men. The Apache were chased by none other than our old acquaintance, Captain William McCleave, the same guy who had been taken prisoner by the Confederates near the Gila River in Arizona. McCleave and his men rode 70 miles along the Gila and Black Rivers, and finally the Rio Bonito in eastern Arizona to find this raiding party. Finally, on March 27th, five days after the raid, McCleave and his men stumbled upon a small Apache camp. In roughly 20 minutes, McCleave and the soldiers with him made short work of this group, either destroying or taking their provisions. Now, Sweeney does point out that this spot along Rio Bonito was said to be a favorite camping place of Cochise, though technically it was in White Mountain, not Chiricahua Apache territory. Chaconans, members of Cochise's particular band of the Chiricahua Apache, were known to flee to this area from time to time, but it remains something of an open question about which group exactly McCleave attacked. There was no doubt that hostilities were continuing to ramp up. In Tucson on April 14, 1863, we have a report that a number of Apache had hit San Javier and stolen nearly 30 mules being used by multiple wagon trains. Can I also just say that it's actually been some time since we visited Tucson in time to see a good old-fashioned Apache raid? With so much change and uncertainty in the world, it's rather nice to know that there are some constants in life. Just a week and a half later, we have another possible sighting of Cochise, but this time back in his traditional grounds in the Chiricahua Mountains. On April 25th, a force of some 200 Apache were said to be in the area of Apache Pass, coming from the north. Captain Benjamin H. Harover at Fort Bowie gathered a force of some 25 men to ride out and scout the situation. Near the springs, where so many battles had happened before, Harover and his men had a small skirmish with the Apache. The soldiers were able to drive the Apache into retreat, even though Harover said that many were armed with large-caliber guns and several muskets. It was reported that three Apache were killed and one soldier wounded. Because of the large force of Apache, it was concluded that this was Cochise and his followers. 
It's very probable, but not 100% certain. And believe it or not, from here on out, it gets really hard to track Cochise. He apparently was down in Mexico due to the peace treaty at Fronteras falling apart. Again. I know. Shocker, right? But up in Arizona and New Mexico, various Apache bands kept up the continual raiding. There is a laundry list of attacks, counterattacks, skirmishes, and killings throughout this period, which are too repetitive for us to really get into all of it. So it will have to suffice for me to point out just a few examples. In May 1863, the Apache assaulted a strongly defended train near the border of Chihuahua, they were forced back with 11 Apache killed. This incident hardly seems worth mentioning, except that the leader of this train was one Charles T. Hayden. For anyone who grew up in the East Valley, this is the same Hayden that will become a judge in Tucson and then later help found Tempe and Arizona State University. Also, he is the father of future U.S. Senator Carl Hayden, who will crop up again in our story in the future. Also in May 1863, a small force of some 25 men under Captain Thomas T. Tidball from Fort Bowie rode out in response to a raid by Apache who were living along Aravipa Canyon. His orders from the start shouldn't surprise us. They read, quote, All grown men are fair game. The women and children capture and bring here. End quote. Tidball and his men rode for five days as stealthily as they could, including not lighting fires to give away their position. Finally, they were able to sneak up on a small rancheria in Aravipa Canyon and fall on the natives there. The fighting eventually resulted in the death of 50 Apache and only one soldier, with more taken captive and livestock seized. That's just a small taste of the endless round of fighting happening across Arizona, New Mexico, Sonora, and Chihuahua. And something tells me you wouldn't be surprised in the least if I told you that General Carleton in New Mexico was sending word to all his commanders to bring the Apache to Hill through force. He would write, quote, I do not look forward to any peace with them except what we must command. They must have no voice in the matter. Entire subjugation or destruction of all the men are the alternatives. End quote. With that, I want to pause the narrative for a bit and talk about the soldiers actually doing the fighting. It should be no surprise that in so brutal a contest, each side came to truly loathe and dehumanize the other. Historian Andrew E. Masick says that the majority of the troops engaged in peacekeeping across Arizona quickly came to agree with Carleton's policy after just a few encounters with the Apache. Almost to a man, they were exterminationists which means they thought that any native that was not peaceful had to be um, taken care of before the land could properly be used. In this, they weren't much different from the frontier settlers who, at least in the retelling of early state historian Thomas Farish, thought that the only true way for peace was to slaughter every last Amerindian capable of bearing arms. These men were also incensed by the whirlwind of rumors that passed through the army about the inhuman Apache and their terrible tortures, including nailing children to cactus and decorating the bridle of their horses with the mustachioed lips of fallen soldiers. As Massick writes, quote, Sympathy for, lo, the poor Indian, evaporated, 
and the Californians set to the task of extermination with hard hearts and grim determination. End quote. But more than the hatred of an implacable foe, the soldiers also tended to degrade their desert-dwelling enemy. One volunteer assigned to fighting Apache would lament, quote, I abhorred the idea of fighting Indians. Let me fight an enemy worth my steel, end quote. You can also see this idea in the marching song of one cavalry unit which went, We'll whip the Apache, we'll exterminate the race, of thieves and assassins who the human form disgrace. We'll travel over mountain and through the valley deep, we'll travel without eating, we'll travel without sleep. Seriously, it's like some dark racist version of Dr. Seuss. Ironically enough, the soldiers began to adopt the tactics of the Apaches themselves, traveling in smaller, lighter groups to move faster, increase stealth, and strike harder against their foe. And letters from the time show that these men were certain that they were man for man better at these tactics than the Apache who had been using them for centuries. So, in the end, and once again to quote Massac, the Apache War had devolved into something more akin to a blood feud. With the soldiers primed and Carlton continuing to give his kill all men and capture the rest orders, we need to turn back to Cochise. Like I said, it's incredibly hard to pin him down during this time, but various Chiricahua bands, including the Chaconans, Bidonkahis, and Chehenis, joined together in the summer of 1863 to really take the fight to the White Eyes. They chose Cook's Peak in New Mexico as the base of their operation and began striking back wherever they could. On June 17th, they attacked a small party at a crossing of the Rio Grande, resulting in the decapitation of an army lieutenant. Over the next several weeks, these Apache hit wagon trains running through the area, raiding supplies and animals, and wounding and killing soldiers. Army leadership was incensed by the brutal attack and the subsequent raids. McCleave received orders to take his men into the field with the additional instructions of, quote, this band of Mimbrous River Indians must be exterminated to a man. Scour every foot of ground and beat up all their haunts. End quote. It was likely this attack had nothing to do with Cochise or those with him, though it is possible he joined the group at Cook's Peak to help prosecute the fight. The evidence for placing Cochise here is that Major David Ferguson, the military commander left in charge of Tucson, was ordered in the summer of 1863 to go on a campaign against the Apache, but he reported that things were actually pretty quiet in his neck of the woods. If Cochise had taken his men into New Mexico to link up with the bands around Cook's Peak, that would explain the downtick in raiding in Arizona. As a further bit of indirect evidence that Cochise was in New Mexico during this time, some of the loot being raided would be found weeks later in the Chiricahua Mountains. However, it also appears that he may have returned to Arizona toward the end of summer to keep up harassment there. In late August, a party of some 75 Apache were able to steal every last horse from Fort Bowie in a well-coordinated raid. In September 1863, a force under Captain James H. Whitlock was able to find and destroy an Apache camp in the Chiricahuas, possibly belonging to Cochise and his followers. This did result in a fierce skirmish that saw a couple soldiers wounded and some of the loot from the wagon train raids in New Mexico recovered. As the fall of 1863 came on, 
the various Chiricahua bands were starting to find themselves in a bit of a difficult spot. All their raiding had incensed the U.S. Army at the same time that all their raiding had incensed the Mexican Army as well. The joint pressure had caused the Apache to scatter towards various remote mountain ranges in southern Arizona. A few captives who managed to escape from the Apache during this time reported that the natives were starving and that they were running short on ammunition because their raids had been unsuccessful of late. The Mexican army managed a string of victories in early 1864, destroying a Nedney rancheria near Janos, and even penetrated into southern Arizona to destroy a Chaconan rancheria in the Chiricahua Mountains. Things are not going to go better for the Chiricahuans in the near future. In February, a leader among the Bedonquiji named Luis took a small group into New Mexico to raid near Pinos Altos, threatening the inhabitants and saying they would return. But before their dreaded deadline date, the Americans sent word once again to Captain Whitlock, who was able to come to their aid. In the ensuing fight, Luis and 12 other Apache were killed. A month later, more Chiricahuans from different bands came together to avenge Luis's death, running off 72 mules from a government train. Whitlock, now a battle-hardened Apache fighter, as Sweeney points out, was again put in charge of retaliation, but chose to be a little sneakier than most about it. So he waited about five days before starting off in pursuit, hoping that the Apache would be lulled into thinking they were not being followed and lower their guard. Finally, Whitlock and more than 70 men began to follow the raiders' trail westward toward the mountains north of Steins Peak, just east of the border between New Mexico and Arizona and a little north of modern Interstate 10. Still trying to be sneaky, Whitlock chose to take a more circuitous route, following the Gila River to the area of Safford before coming down from the north. All his preparations worked, because both his delay and coming from an unexpected direction allowed he and his men to completely surprise a rancheria in the Grand Mountains. Whitlock reports that they killed 21 wretches of an estimated 250 living there. If that number is to be believed, and that is a decent if, then Sweeney says there's a possibility this camp belonged to none other than Cochise. Only Cochise would have had that many Chaconans around him at any given time. If that is true, this would have been a great setback for Cochise and the Chiricahua. They just lost homes, property, stock, and, according to Sweeney, the two or three guns they actually had with them. Of course, a counterattack to the counterattack for the counterattack that had avenged the attack that had killed Luis was now called for. By the way, if you are now hearing in your head that famous Gandhi quote about how an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, then you are probably on the right track. About a month after Whitlock's attack, Cochise, or at least a force of somewhere between 100 and 200 Chiricahua Apache from various bands, gathered in a spot known as Doubtful Canyon near Steins Peak. On May 4, 1864, a detachment of 60 men under Lieutenant Henry Stevens rode into the canyon. Despite the place being a regular spot for Apache ambushes, the men were not expecting any danger. As one of them later wrote, quote, We did not know that there was an Indian within 20 miles of us. End quote. Turns out that there were, and there was definitely more than one. 
Shortly after daybreak, Stevens and his men passed the now-abandoned Butterfield Station near Stein's Peak. At that point, the Apache launched their ambush. With a loud whoop coming from the high rocks and crevices all around the soldiers, the Apache, quote, poured arrows into our ranks by the hundred, end quote. That's an important point. They launched arrows. Guns and ammunition were seriously lacking. But this initial assault wounded four soldiers and even managed to kill Stephen's horse. In a display ripped straight from a movie, Stevens urged his men forward, waving his hat through the air to encourage them. He himself was not hit, but the hat would take an arrow through it as he was waving it about. The fight lasted some 45 minutes, and the soldiers attested that the Apache, quote, had fought like devils, end quote. However, in the end, the Apache had to withdraw to higher positions in the mountains. Stevens would report that at least 10 Apache were left dead at the scene, with an estimated 20 or so more wounded. Of his men, one was missing, one was mortally wounded, one had a broken arm, and three others were slightly wounded. When he learned of the attack, Carlton made sure to praise Stevens for his resolution in the face of this uncivilized foe. When he sent the report to his superiors in Washington, he called the skirmish, quote, a handsome little fight, end quote. Which sounds exactly like the sort of thing Carlton would say. I'm going to leave it there for this week, as we'll get more into the full extent of the retribution cycle and how Carlton's extermination policy played out against the Cherokee Apache in coming episodes. As I said from the beginning, Cochise and then Geronimo will be leading this cause into the 1880s, so trust me, there will be a lot more to say when the time comes. But that time must wait, because, as I mentioned last week, the next episode will fall on February 14th, which happens to be both Arizona's 109th birthday and the one-year anniversary of this humble little podcast. I'm planning something of a retrospective for this next episode to go over everything that's happened since we started taking this journey together. For all you hikers out there, this is the moment when you pause for a rest on the hillside to see how far you've come up since the trailhead, before looking up and realizing how far you have to go until you get to the top of the mountain. But I also want to make sure that you, the listeners, get in on this action. So I'm again putting out the call for questions. Is there something you've been wondering about how the podcast is produced? About what we've covered so far, or about Arizona history in general? Shoot me your questions either via email at david at azhistorypodcast.com or on the podcast's Twitter or Facebook sites. Remember, I'm at azhistorypod. Please make sure to give me your questions by Tuesday, February 9th, so I have time to read them and incorporate them into the episode. I'm very interested to see what kind of questions you guys come up with. And one last programming note before we leave off this week. This is just a warning that there will be no new episode on Sunday, February 21st. I'm entertaining out-of-state visitors the week of the 15th and just cannot put in the necessary time in order to produce an episode for Sunday, February 21st. I apologize for the interruption to our regularly scheduled slow march forward through history, but real life sometimes has its own plans. But the good news is, you'll have the special February 14th episode, we'll take a break, 
and on February 28th, we'll dive back into all the fun as we finally start wrapping up the Civil War in Arizona. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Remember to send me your questions.